Good morning. Today I will be reading from 1 Peter 1, verses 3 to 9. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because of his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. You are being guarded by God's power through faithful salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. You rejoice in this, even though now, for a short time, if necessary, you suffer grief in various trials so that the proven character of your faith, more valuable than gold, which, though perishable, is refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Through, you have not seen him, you love him. Though not seeing him now, you believe in him, and you rejoice with inexpressible and glorious joy because you are receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Thank you. Now, it's good to be here this morning as we come to uh, think about what the Apostle Peter is writing here. Now, one of the things churches... Uh, since the very inception of the church has done, is to come together weekly um, or regularly and to open up God's Word, the Bible, and to think about it together. And we do this because we believe that God's Word is actually a living Word. It is a living book. And in it, uh, the words, uh, you know, that God has given us in it, they actually have the power to change us and to grow us and to make us more like Jesus, to kind of help us take that step towards uh, being more and more like Christ. And so, the reason pretty much every church you go to will have a sermon or a message or a homily or whatever you want to call it, is because we share this belief that God's Word uh, will speak to us and will change us. And so, um, I want to pray that, we, uh, that that will happen and then we'll get stuck in. So, let's pray. Lord, as we open here now uh, the uh, book of 1 Peter or the letter that Peter wrote, the first one, we pray that you will uh, open our hearts and minds as well. We pray that your Holy Spirit will uh, illuminate the text for us, that we will be able to see it clearly and that we will not leave here the same, uh, but that you will actually change us this morning as we, as we come to sit under your word and to be formed by it. And so we pray for your wisdom and your understanding. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're going to be looking at this uh, passage from the book of 1 Peter. Now 1 Peter is a letter that the Apostle, which was one of Jesus' followers, wrote to, um, to the church. And he's writing to the church that um, they're called the Diaspora. So basically what happened is early in the church, all the Jews had to flee from persecution. Christians had to flee uh, because they were being persecuted. And so Peter is writing to encourage these people. And he writes about the hope they have, you know, how they can have a living hope. Now, for us to consider this well, I think we need to ask a couple of different questions. And firstly is, why do we need a living hope? Secondly, where can we get this living hope? And thirdly, what does this hope do for us? So, where, why do we need hope? Where can we get it? And what does it do for us? So, firstly then, why do we need hope? Now, I think this is a great time for us to reflect on this question because really we, we see so much happening in the world today and we can feel quite hopeless because of it, actually. We're in a situation in the world today where we need hope. You know, as we, uh, as we sit here this morning, we're kind of waiting for the imminent 
ground invasion of the Gaza Strip by Israeli forces. And you look at that and you think, where's the hope in that situation? This is, of course, in retaliation to the terrorist actions uh, committed by Hamas, which is a group whose name literally means violence. And so now Israel's response is to retaliate in violence of their own. And this whole situation is fraught and it's dangerous and we can really ask the question, where's the hope, you know, in that? Where do we find hope? All closer to home, we live at a time in which, humanly speaking, uh, things don't really make a lot of sense. You know, we, we live in a country where we have one of the highest, um, highest levels of education, one of the best welfare systems in the world. We have, you know, universal healthcare and, you know, it's not perfect, that's true, but it is miles ahead of most of the rest of the world. When we wake up in the morning, most of us don't have to worry about you know, whether we've been burgled overnight. We live in a safe country with a good police force and generally good law-abiding citizens. Again, not perfect, but it is some of the best in the world. And for the seven years leading up to COVID, Melbourne was the world's most livable city. And even now, this year, we are the third most livable city in the world. It's an incredible privilege to live here. We really do have it very good. And yet, and yet... Our state accounts for over 45% of our country's heroin usage. We are up 70% more than Sydney and five times that of every other state capital in Australia. Nationally, according to Beyond Blue, every year about 3,000 people in Australia commit suicide, so around, you know, nine or ten a day. And almost half of the people that live here will experience mental health issues over the course of our lifetime. And in the last year alone, one in five people uh, report suffering from mental health difficulties. We are not a people that is, or that are driven by hope for the future. Why is that? Why is it that we can both live in the world's most livable city and at the same time be the most dependent on uh, heavy drugs? Why can we have all the privileges of living in the lucky country with all the wonderful things we have and yet lose so many to hopelessness and leave so many struggling every day? How is that possible? How does that make sense? And personally, how do we live with hope even when we disappoint ourselves? If you've been alive for really any length of time, if you've, like me, reflected on your life, most of us will quickly come to realize that we are pretty hopeless human beings. Why is it that, you know, when you wake up in the morning with a hairy hangover and the noise of the children pierces through your head like a freight train, why is it that, that's not what I did this morning, okay, I just want to make sure you understand that. Um, but even in our nation's most beloved export, the cartoon character Bluey, there is an episode where Bluey's parents wake up the morning after New Year's Eve, and really, reading between the lines, that's their situation. Why is it that that happens, that you wake up and you swear off alcohol, right? I'll never drink again, you say to yourself, and then when Friday night comes, uh, you seem to have forgotten all about your promise, and you just go for it twice as hard as before. Why do we do that? Why do we do that? We're pretty hopeless. Why is it that we can't tame the monster that lives inside. Christians believe that the root cause of all these things is the same. 
the reason Hamas terrorises Israel, the reason Israel wants revenge, the reason we have a, such a drug problem, the reason we have that problem even though we lived in the world's be best city, the reason we suffer from higher rates of depression and suicide despite being incredibly privileged as a nation, the reason we can't seem to do the good even we want to do, uh, uh, the reason we do the bad we don't want to do, the reason we can't tame the monster inside, the reason for all these things is the same. And the reason 1 Peter alludes to, hints at, is that we put our hope in the wrong things. We put our hope, our trust in the things that will slowly kill us. So what does the Bible say here? Read with me from verse 3, if you've got your Bible with you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because of His great mercy, He has given us a new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Did you notice the crucial word there is living? New birth into a living hope. Peter is making a distinction here between a dead hope and a living hope. And we need to understand what that is if we are going to understand what Peter is saying here. Because we humans have a deep issue, and that is that we put our hope in dead things. We have dead hopes, not living hopes. And now we have to understand this if we are to think about this properly. Now, hope in this context means something like the thing that keeps you going, right? Or the thing that gives your life meaning and purpose, the thing that drives you towards uh, the next thing, the thing that you look forward as the reward after you've pushed through the hard time. That's kind of what hope means in the context of this passage. And the point that Peter is making is that the default human position, most of us put our hope in the wrong thing most of the time. Dead things, things that are not living, things that cannot give us life. And our hope is normally in things that overpromise and under-deliver. Let me give you an example. Let's say we put our hope in the dead thing of financial well-being, of wealth, of money, financial success. We can do this because deep down we believe that when we are rich, when we finally have enough in the bank account, we will be happy, we will be safe, we will be secure, our life will be better because of it. And so this hope drives us and shapes us so that... <clears throat> It shapes our behaviour, doesn't it? it? If our hope is in money, then we're going to work harder to get the better job, the best promotion, the, the pay increase and so on. And we might even succeed, actually. We might get the, the, the better job with the higher pay and the more responsibility. But as that happens, with the promotion comes a better car and a nicer office. And now the kids can go to a nicer private school, maybe. And now the holidays are overseas, not in a tent. And it all sounds very good and lovely and wonderful until you realise when you're in the situation and that actually your life really isn't all that much better and the thing that you had hoped would give you life has actually turned around and started to suck you in deeper and deeper. Because you thought that the pay increase would make you happy, but now you're forced to work longer hours to pay off a bigger mortgage, which you didn't have before, on a larger house, which is largely empty. And now uh, you are at home less, and your children, who now attend this wonderful private school, see you less and less as a result. And no child, I think, ever has said, I am so glad my daddy sp never spent time with me, 
because of his work. And so the relationship with your family starts breaking down, but you've got money right, and that's good. That is a dead hope. And it's not just money. We put our hope in the wrong things, in dead things all the time. Money is a dead thing that cannot give you eternal meaning and purpose. But we put our hope in dead things all the time. It could be the relationship with with a significant other person, in drugs, in sex, in movies, in education, in food, in power. These are all dead things that overpromise and underdeliver. All things that, that we believe. If I just have that, then I will be happy. And then when you get that, you find you are even more unhappy. And we become enslaved to these things. And we do it again and again and again because we think, once I have the next thing, then I will have made it. So why do we keep doing this? Why do we keep hoping in these dead things? And we can spend an entire day talking about just this topic. But briefly, the Bible tells us that the reason we do this is because our hearts are warped. They're a bit broken. Our humanity, in a sense, is corrupted on the inside. And at our deepest level, at our heart of hearts, each one of us wants to define for ourselves what is right and what is wrong. We want to take God off the throne and put ourselves on the throne. We want to be people who decide right and wrong for ourselves. Deeply, deeply, each one of us wants to be our own boss. Deep in our hearts, we want to reject what God has created us to be. And because we have become our own bosses, because we decided that this is the thing that's going to give me life, We look for hope and purpose in whatever that thing is, in the dead places, in the places that promise us hope, but actually steal it from us. So why do we need a living hope? Because we don't have it. We only have a dead hope, a dead hope that keeps killing us slowly, enslaving us more and more. So where do we get it? Where can we get this living hope? Read with me again, I repeat from verse 3 to 5. So this is Peter writing, he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because of his great mercy, he has given us a new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you. You are being guarded by God's power through faith for a salvation that is ready to be revealed at the last time. So where does this living hope come from? Well, Peter tells us that the place it comes from is actually twofold. It's God's mercy through Jesus Christ and our response to that. So let's look at God's mercy. Where do we get this, this living hope? Peter tells us that it is because of God's great mercy through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead that we are born into this living hope. Now, there's a lot to tease out there in verse 3. But this is what Christians believe. This is the basis of the foundation for everything we hold dear. And so what's going on here? Now, remember how we talked about how each one of us has this deep internal drive to put our hope in the wrong things, in dead things, to be our own boss, to decide what is right and wrong for ourselves. 
The Bible has a name for that, and it has several names for that actually, but the, the most frequently used one is sin. Now, sin is a word we don't use very much in our culture, in our life today anymore, and when we do, it's often actually seen as, as kind of a good thing, uh, a sort of a tongue-in-cheek, um, naughty thing you do that doesn't really hurt anyone. We use phrases like, that chocolate was sinfully delicious. Uh, and I'm going to eat that chocolate, even though I know it's probably going to kill me one day, uh, because it's so unhealthy, I'm going to eat it anyway, naughty me, sinfully delicious. Or if you go to the Gold Coast, there is a famous nightclub there called Sin City. It is billed as the place to be. This is where all the fun happens. And according to TripAdvisor, from a review from John, who visited this place in January of 2020, he says, there are lots of cute girls there. And he, quote, I actually found my girlfriend there named Gemma. She's so cute, we're getting married soon. We got hammered there and now we have a kid named Lucas. Five stars out of five. Now, sin is a term that has lost its meaning in our society. But in the Bible, sin comes down to us deciding to put ourselves on God's throne and to say, I'm going to go my own way and I will decide what is right and wrong. I'm going to reject how God has made me to be. I'm going to reject His will for my life. uh, And so I'm going to be my own boss. That's the heart of what sin is. And so as a result of that, we fail to do the things that God has created us to do, you know. We, we don't do the good things that we're supposed to do and we, um, and we do all the things we shouldn't be doing. So we believe then that it's okay to hook up with Gemma and eat the chocolate and put our hope in the dead things because if I'm the boss, if I'm the king on my throne, then I get to decide. And the problem with that is that all of us have this sin and in the Bible, sin is this idea that we, God is so holy and so pure and so righteous that He cannot be in the presence of sin. And the problem that we have is you sin and I sin, all of us sin, you know, he's a sinner and so is she, uh, we are all sinners and we all fall short of the glory of the perfect life that God wants us to live. The Bible tells us that there is a reward for sin, you actually get payment for it. But the payment we have for sin is eternal separation from God's love and His goodness. It is an eternity in hell. And every one of us, including me, are on a path that will take us there unless we experience divine intervention. Unless we are saved and taken off that path we are stuck. And the reality is we'll keep on putting our hope in dead things and we're going to keep pursuing our, our own rights and wrongs and we are going to keep saying, God, I'm going to be my own God. I reject you. I don't want you. I don't want to be with you. And God will give us the desires of our hearts unless we turn to Him. He will give us what we want. He will give us an eternity apart from Him. But the Bible tells us that as a place of extreme suffering, a literal hell, and it is uncomfortable to talk about, and it's not something we like to think about, but that is our reality, all of us, apart from God's mercy. 
And we are much more interested to, to hear about John's exploits with Gemma and their kid named Lucas. But that is the truth of Scripture. We need God's mercy. We actually need to get off that path. We need God to intervene in our lives so that we don't keep putting ourselves on the throne of our hearts and we don't keep putting our hope in all the wrong and dead places. We actually need God's mercy. And what Peter is saying here, what he reminds us to, uh, is that we need to respond to God's mercy that's available for us. You see, God's mercy is freely available to everyone who would come and bow a knee to Him. The good news of the Christian gospel is this, that mercy, that saving from that path leading to eternal destruction is freely available for anyone who would accept it. And so how do we accept it? How do we get this mercy that is, you know, in Christ Jesus, as Peter puts it? It says, step one is to come to grips with the reality that we actually need saving. We need to recognize that we are on a path that is going to lead to our eternal separation from God, that we're all on this path and that that is a bad thing and that we want to change. Then we need to shift our hope from the dead things we've been hoping in like money, relationships, power, whatever it is, and start trusting in, hoping in, the living hope, which is Jesus. The issue with our sin is that we cannot pay for, us, for it for ourselves. Unless we are washed clean, we will continue travelling down this road. But you know, because God so loved the world, He actually made a way open through Jesus to come and live the perfect life that we should have lived. And Jesus willingly came and he went through this, his entire life without sinning, without breaking God's law, without ever putting himself on the throne, not even once, and then he died in our place. So when Jesus goes to the cross, what we would have seen if we stood there was simply a man hanging on the cross, dying. But what God was doing in that moment is that he was putting our sin on Jesus and all the bad that any that we have ever done all the misplaced hopes the things that we've trusted in all the times we've said to God through our actions and our words that actually I'm God and you're not and I get to decide what is right and wrong for myself he took all of those things and he placed it on Jesus and Jesus willingly took those things and died in our place and everyone who believes that is saved Every person who has placed their trust in Jesus and said in their heart, God, I don't want to be uh, the ruler of my heart anymore. I don't want to decide what is right and wrong for myself anymore. I want to be your child. I want to reject the dead things that I've been hoping in. And I want to trust in the living thing, that is Jesus Christ on the cross, to stand in my place. Every person who has believed that has received God's mercy. And that is what Peter talks about when he says we have a living hope. Because unlike the dead hopes that we've had before, this hope, hope in Jesus, is not a weak kind of hope that maybe my life will one day be good enough when I have enough money. This is a living hope, a sure hope, a hope that has already happened because Jesus has already died for our sins and this is a hope that cannot disappoint us, it cannot let us down, it is living and it is eternal. 
And so we've seen that we need hope and we've seen, because we're pretty useless. And we've seen where we can get this living hope from Jesus and bending the knee to Him and saying, yes, I want to follow you. But what does this result in? What, what happens to us when we hope like this? I read from verse 5. You are being guarded by God's power through faith for a salvation that is ready to be revealed at the last time. You rejoice in this, even though now for a short time, if necessary, you will suffer grief in various trials, so that the proven character of your faith, more valuable than gold, which though perishable is refined by fire, may result in praise and glory and honour at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him, and though not seeing him now, you believe in him and rejoice with inexpressible and glorious joy because you are receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Peter here is reflecting on what happens when we have this living hope. And he surprises us, actually. Because he tells his readers that if you believe in Jesus, you cannot be unsaved. You cannot lose true salvation. If you've genuinely turned and put your hope uh, in the living thing that is Jesus and off the dead things and you put it in Jesus instead, then your eternal life is guarded by God himself. He says, in fact, because of that, you can have eternal joy. You can have joy even when your life goes wrong. You see, when you trust in something that is living and not dead, it gives you a kind of staying power, a type of grit, even when things go wrong. And what Peter is saying here is you can have joy even when you are suffering because nothing can snatch from you the hope you have in Jesus. A living hope in Christ changes you from the inside and it actually delivers you in a way that a dead hope never can. Because the thing is, have you ever wondered why it is when you trust in dead hope, things like money or relationships or power, whatever, why it is that they never satisfy us? Why can't they ever give what they promise? It is because each of these things promises to give us an everlasting joy. They promise us internal satisfactions. But as soon as we achieve whatever that thing is, the satisfaction war, uh, wears off. It's like a dopamine hit that fades and leaves us craving for more. And each time we go there, we want more and we want more. More money, more power, more relationships with people. But each step we take kind of kills us more and more. Because the joy these things bring is temporary. It is fleeting. And it is mostly dead. And these hopes are particularly disappointing when we go through periods of extreme suffering and difficulty. Having a million dollars in the bank doesn't do anything for you when you uh, get a cancer diagnosis. But not so the living hope we have in Jesus when we come to trust in Him. You see, a living hope in Jesus gives you the capacity to respond with joy in every circumstance. Those who trust in Jesus knows that every bad thing that happens to them is not because God is angry at us, because He's already taken all of our suffering, uh, you know, all, all of our wrath on the cross. And so when suffering comes, when we go through difficult times, we can have joy because we know that we are being purified, Peter says through this trial, through this fire. Peter describes this as a refining fire. You know, we are being refined through fire. 
true hope is not necessarily the absence of suffering. When you trust in Jesus, it's not a promise that you won't go through bad things. What you get, though, is the presence of God with you in that suffering. And that's why we call it a living hope. Because it is a hope that walks with you when you go through difficult times. It is a hope that shapes you from the inside through difficult times. It is a hope that gives you hope when you are hopeless. And it is a hope that says that when you know that you're about to die from sickness or disease or because your house is being burnt down because of persecution, I will be okay. Because the worst thing that this world can do is kill my body. But it cannot steal my soul. And so the invitation for all of us again this morning is to come and to put to death the dead hopes that we've been trusting in. To turn from those things and to put our trust, perhaps even for the first time, in the living hope we have in Christ Jesus. And when we do, we can say with the old, you know, with the old hymn, because he lives, I can face tomorrow. Because he lives, all fear is gone. Because I know he holds the future. Life is worth living just because he lives. And if we face the end of our life, we can sing like the final verse in that song too. And then one day I'll cross that river. That's death. I'll fight love's final war with pain. And as death gives way to victory, I'll see the lights of glory and I'll know he reigns. And so because he lives, I can face tomorrow. Because he lives, all fear is gone. And because I know he holds my future, my life is worth living just because he lives. May that be true for you today. Let me pray. Lord, we recognize that we often put our hope in dead things. Things we believe will give us satisfaction and a sense of purpose and meaning in our lives. And yet these are dead things, things that cannot give us the life you offer. So we pray that you will turn our hearts to you, that we will trust in the living hope we have, the mercy of God, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, our Lord. May that be true for each one of us here. We pray this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.